Welcome to The Powers That Be, Pac's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players that run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. On today's podcast, we'll be talking to Julia Yaffe about Putin's brutal long game in Ukraine and whether the West will slowly stop paying attention. And we're going to speak to William Cohan about the Wall Street investors trying to make bank by betting against Russia's suffering economy. Before we start the show, we have a very special announcement. Starting this Monday, The Powers That Be will be a daily podcast. Every weekday, I'll be bringing you all the expert insider reporting that only Puck can deliver. We're really excited about this, and I hope that you enjoy The Powers That Be. Joining me now on The Powers That Be is Julia Yaffe in Washington, uh, one of the lead journalists on the Russia-Ukraine conflict. Julia, um, as we record this, one of the big topics of conversation um, among journalists, diplomats, activists, worldwide observers is the possibility of war crimes. Um, It seems like Putin, as usual, uh, doesn't give a shit about any of this. Um, What are you hearing? What what kind of pictures are you seeing from Ukraine that would suggest, uh, you know, Russia is not abiding by the rules of conflict in any way. Well, today we're recording this on Wednesday and the world saw images of this maternity hospital basically taking, well, not a direct hit, but Mm -hmm. getting hit. You saw pregnant women who are either in labor or about to be being hustled out of the hospital or carried on gurneys. We saw a mass grave being dug, you know, because there are already so many casualties. The UN today said that at least 516 civilians had been killed, though the or 501, although the mm-hmm. number is likely far, far higher. Um, the city of Mariupol has been uh, surrounded, and people are—it's out of water. People are running out of food, um, which is amazing that the. Russian army is doing this because, you know, every former Soviet person knows about the siege of Leningrad and how people there were cut off from food and died, you know, a million people died of starvation and disease. It's just, you know, but Putin has done this before. He trained, uh, trained us hand in Chechnya. You know, what we're seeing now, we saw in Chechnya, what we're seeing now we saw in Syria. And, when the country doesn't or the population doesn't surrender easily and happily to him, mm-hmm. he is more than happy to bomb it into the ground and kill women and children. It's this kind of, I mean, it's more than psychological warfare, but it's also psychological warfare in the sense of like, nobody is safe, put pressure on your men to stop fighting and to give up and negotiate, you know, deliberately targeting women and children And it also, you know, like you said, he doesn't give a shit in Chechnya and he got away with it. He didn't give a shit in Syria and he and Assad got away with it. You know, like, is he ever going to see the inside of a courtroom? No. You know, are these generals? Also, probably not. And there are no real consequences for him. He's already been hit with massive, overwhelming sanctions and he doesn't seem to care. In fact, it's only making him more angry and aggressive. I don't know. He's just, I I feel like this is what we talked about, I think last week, right? When we were talking about how there was this glee in the West at, you know, seeing 
Ukrainian soldiers waltzing with javelins and and babushki telling Russian soldiers to put sunflower seeds in their pockets. And there was this glorifying and memification of the war because the Ukrainians mm. were so plucky and fighting back so well. And a lot of us were watching this and saying, you know, the more these people fight back, the more Putin's going to punish them. And the more brutal and inhumane this war is going to get, and the more it's going to turn into Syria and Chechnya. And that's unfortunately what we're seeing today. I took a cue from our conversation, actually, uh, when I uh, produced my Snapchat show, Good Luck America, last week, which is for, you know, Gen Z news consumers. And I basically stole your language and I headlined the show. This isn't a meme. This is a war. And there, there's just like for every video of a brave Ukrainian woman tucking sunflower seeds into a Russian soldier or a Ukrainian guy stealing a Russian tank. You know, if you comb through the depths of social media right now and look at the user generated content, which is really defining the coverage of the war. I mean, there's great journalists over there who are doing incredible stuff, but the the minute by minute like brutality, that stuff is being recorded on cell phone video. And there are dead bodies, you know, when you look at Twitter videos and Facebook and YouTube. And, you know, one thing I, I have a hunch that Putin is counting on is, and I keep saying this phrase, I don't know where it got in my head but that he's got this long view of history. And like part of that is just Russia's place in the world, in Europe compared to the United States, which is relatively young. And I think it was an Axios piece this week that said viewership for the Ukraine conflict and and, and readership of articles has really fallen just over the course mm-hmm. of a week. Um, yeah. Which suggests the attention span of Americans at least is, pretty short when it comes to these things. And we saw that with the exit from Afghanistan two weeks later, not really a story. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, certainly I feel like world leaders aren't going to give up pressure anytime soon and stop funding Ukrainian fighters. But Putin can probably count on the fact that a lot of people in the world will kind of stop caring. Yep. This week, next week, the week after that, when something new happens in the world and something captivates people's attention otherwise. That's right. Uh, And I'm starting to see it too, kind of a drop off in coverage. You know, it used to be wall to wall and now it's like there's other stuff filtering into the news, uh, the news broadcasts because there's, there is, there's other stuff happening in the world and it's human nature to only care so much about something that isn't happening to you and uh, in your immediate vicinity. I think, you know, within a week or two, we won't be talking about this as much, but the killing will probably still be going on, you Mm -hmm. know, uh, unless there's some kind of settlement. I think you're absolutely right about Putin's view of history. I think he feels like, you know, like a lot of um, sociopaths and megalomaniacs who turn to history as justification and guide. I mean, you have, for example, Mark Zuckerberg, you know, who thinks he's akin to like, was it, is it Augustus or Marcus Aurelius? Well, you know, one of them, right? Mm -hmm. I think he feels like if you win the war, you get to write the history. And the fact that you won the war will matter more than the bad things you did along the way. And I don't think he thinks he's doing bad things, but I think he's counting on the world to remember it that way. You know, if you look back at Russia's history, it's only in kind of retelling the Soviet history that we mention all the 
the bloody excesses of, for example, of Stalin's collectivization drive or industrialization drive. But, you know, people talk about Peter the Great and how he built St. Petersburg. He built that city on bones. I mean, Mm -hmm. so many serfs died building that city of disease, of exposure in this, you know, like frozen swamp. People don't really talk about that, right? He's Peter the Great. He built a great navy and he built an amazing modern European city in Russia and he modernized Russia. And that's what people remember him for. Mm -hmm. And, you know, nobody's talking about the body count. People Mm -hmm. are talking about the victory and whatever piece of territory she or whatever it's are managed to lop off. And I think that's what he thinks is going to happen. I don't know that he's wrong. For people listening, Julia is extremely in demand. You have seen her on television. She's writing frequently for Puck. She's got a great piece up this week called The Death of Putin that everyone should read, Um, especially for people who are wish casting that Putin's just going to go away. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Real quick before I let you go, I I actually found the article I referenced. Um, Sarah Fisher wrote about it for Axios on March 1st. Uh, when the invasion began, or roughly around then, the invasion began. Over 100,000 articles were published by major publishers by March 6th. That had dropped to 36,000. Stories about Ukraine had around 18 million social media interactions when the invasion began. That's been sliced in half, down to 7.8 million. Um, Lots of people are obviously still paying attention, but it just shows the attention span. Um, But the question I wanted to ask you before you jump is that one of your, I think, biggest assets as a journalist is um, your Russian heritage and your Russian friends and uh, who are in Russia. The U.S. said they were going to ban uh, oil, gas, and coal imports from Russia this week. That accounts for about 40% of their state revenue, I believe. So it should put some kind of crimp in their economy, um, even though the U.S. doesn't import a lot from Russia. But it's clear that the Russian economy is suffering right now under the combined sanctions from all over the world. What are people saying there right now? Are your friends still trying to leave? Are they able to get money out of ATMs? I mean, can you give us some color as to what's happening on the ground there? Uh, it's bad. So most of my friends who are, you know, my age are gone. They've all fled. I was talking to an acquaintance of mine who is a prominent media entrepreneur and editor, and he fled to Tbilisi in Georgia the Georgian interior ministry has said that something like 25,000 Russians crossed into Georgia in the last week. And this acquaintance showed me the Facebook group that he had started to help people coordinate who had fled, you know, how to get their money out because Visa and MasterCard suspended operations in Russia. But the people it really hit were the people who fled Putin and fled the war they can no longer use their cards and they can't use them at ATMs to get their own money out. Whereas people inside Russia can still use their visas and MasterCards because those transactions are serviced by a local company uh, and local processors. So he showed me just the total, like uh, a screenshot of the group and it was 92,000 people. Wow. And that's like in a week. That happened in a week. And these are the best and the brightest. These are the journalists, the designers, the artists, the filmmakers, the restaurant workers, the mixologists, you know, all all the people who made Moscow and St. Petersburg really incredible cities in the last 10 to 15 years. The kinds of cities that you, Peter, would love, you know, that made certain parts of it indistinguishable from L.A. or Brooklyn. And it's hard, you know, they also are, they all know their history and they know that 
when the white emigres fled in 1917, 1918, 1922, they all thought they'd go back in a year or two because they thought no, no, there's no way these rabble rousers will stay in power. And, you know, they all died abroad because mm. that experiment lasted for over 70 years. So um, a lot of them are really scared. A lot of them have their kids with them and they don't know how they're going to survive for the next weeks or months or however long they're, you know, and where they can stay. Immigration is also an issue for them. They're also very wary of asking for help because these are all people who are very much against the war, who are absolutely horrified by what their government is doing um, and feel that they bear some level of responsibility for it. So they're very wary of asking for help publicly because they don't want to pull resources away from Ukrainians mm -hmm. who obviously have it much worse, but they're, you know, all going to be in need soon. The friends who are still in Russia are, their funds are basically frozen in the banks. Yesterday, the central bank said that people can only take out $10,000 from their own accounts until September 9th. And the rest can only be in rubles. Yeah. I mean, September 9th is a really long time. That's like six months away. God. Yeah. And and the rest it can only be done in rubles. And ru the ruble is like crashing through the floor. And it will crash further when the central bank can't support it anymore. I think Fitch and Morgan Stanley are projecting a default, a Russian default by mid-April. People are freaking out. The people are, who are still left are trying to see how much they can salvage of their money so that when they leave, they can be in a slightly better economic situation. But I personally am not sure how they're going to leave because Aeroflot is um, suspended international flights a few days ago. I want to say Saturday was the last day because they don't want their jets impounded by leasing companies abroad because of these sanctions. So one of my friends got his brother out. His brother is of military age and he got him out. His brother was stopped at the airport three times for questioning by the FSB, uh, as a lot of young men were. And luckily, his flight was delayed by two hours, so he was able to make the flight and get out of the country. But a lot of people missed their flights as a result. And there were reports of men, young Russian men, having to kind of, you know, they'd get stopped by the FSB, the flight would leave, and then they'd have to sign a document saying they wouldn't leave Russia. My friend... I was really worried about him. He's a very close friend. And he was able to get out on one of the very last air flights out of the country, made it into Uzbekistan because it was one of the last places that Russian flights were going to. And then from there, he went on to Istanbul, where there's another big group of Russian refugees now. It's just, it's unbelievable how many people have been affected by it. I think a lot of people are kind of in disbelief. They thought that they could, you know, the repression was coming on slowly, right? They slowly tighten the screws and people would adjust and they'd figure out how to live with this repression. And then suddenly everything came crashing down and no more compromises and adjustments were possible. And now, you know, these very well-educated, well-traveled, sophisticated people are refugees too. But again, unlike Ukrainians, they're, they don't want to ask for help because they feel Ukrainians should get it. Anyway, it's just, it's just Awful. Yeah, no, and I, you're right that the Ukrainian refugees are, are facing a, a plight completely out of their control. But I do think it was worth addressing the Russians um, who are leaving. It's important to talk about that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Also, I am not your assignment editor, but I would love to hear if you talk to that Russian 
man of fighting age what the FSB was asking him on the way out of the airport because that sounds absolutely terrifying. Oh, well, what they were asking them, that people were checking phones and checking people's social media and they were asking, you know, how do you feel about the war in Ukraine? Do you like Vladimir Putin? Why are you leaving the country? It's it's fucking wild. That is crazy. Um, okay, Julia, uh, get back to work. We will talk to you ASAP, I'm sure. Thanks, Peter. Here with me to honor this final version of the powers that be is Bill Cohan, our man on Wall Street. Uh, speaking of finales, Bill, you went to you went to Duke, right? I did. Yes. Did oh, you? Please. You're not gonna. <laughs> you're, that's the way you're starting this. You're starting this with that. It's a whole new season now, Peter. I, I, you know, if I had to pick sides, I would pick Carolina. But um, I, I'm curious what you thought of not the loss to. North Carolina and Coach K's finale, but his little post-game remarks. Commentary? Commentary, yeah. Yeah, there was a lot of chatter among the Duke crowd. Uh, Maybe he should have said the loss was unfortunate as opposed to unacceptable. You know, they really played poorly, uh, especially in the second half. They forgot how to play defense. They just crushed Carolina a week or so earlier by 20 five points in the Dean Dome. So here to sort of give up the ghost in Cameron on Coach K's final day and kind of forget how to play defense in the second half, there was a lot riding on it. There were a lot of people there. There were a lot of former Duke players. I mean, there was a huge television audience. But there are a lot of Duke haters out there, so there are a lot of people who probably enjoyed it. But no, that wasn't the uh, storybook Hollywood ending. It wouldn't be the ending that Matt Baloney would write, <laughs> but it is the ending we got. I am one of those Ducators, but I also am a Georgetown fan, and Georgetown is currently winless for the entire season in the Big East under Coach Patrick Ewing, so I am not one to talk. And those games between Duke and Georgetown used to be so satisfying. Absolutely, absolutely. Bill, you have a piece up this week about how the Russia invasion of Ukraine is becoming, in your words, a uniquely dark investing opportunity. (laughs) And the lead of your piece says this, one of my favorite Wall Street expressions surmises that the real action in the financial markets happens when, quote, the lines of fear and greed cross. It feels like we are living in one of those moments. What, What are savvy or craven... (laughs) depending on your perspective, investors doing with Russia at the moment? You write that people are actually finding ways to make money, make profit off of this mess. Well, Peter, this is the nature of markets. So for every winner, there's a loser, literally. For every buyer, there's a seller. At times like these, when there's so much disruption and so much chaos and the markets are so volatile, and in such turmoil, especially after, you know, you know, 13-year bull market. Uh, so this was kind of inevitable. What was, you know, especially when, when you know that the Fed is going to be raising interest rates and so that the, you know, the punch bowl is going to be taken away. And then you combine it with Russian invasion in Ukraine, which has all sorts of implications for commodities, oil markets, obviously, you know, it's it's just a recipe for both fear and greed. People are 
very afraid, not only for their lives, obviously, in Ukraine, and, you know, who knows whether this is going to metastasize or not. But when the markets are freaking out like this, uh, people are, of course, concerned for their financial well-being. And when in Russia, which is, you know, a notoriously difficult place to invest under the best of circumstances and increasingly very risky place under the best of circumstances. Now you've got interest rates at 20%. You've got the ruble losing a huge amount of value collapsing. You've got oil prices going through the roof. You've got the stocks of uh, the, you know, the equities of Russian companies collapsing and the debt securities of Russian companies, probably the sovereign debt of Russia, trading at a huge discount. Incredibly, there are people out there um, who think this is a, you know, a unique buying opportunity. I, I, we don't know who they are, uh, but you know, there are hedge funds that are set up to take advantage of opportunities just like this. That this kind of dislocation and disruption just does not come along. Obviously, every day, I hate to be so crass about it, but, you know, it doesn't come along. And so people perceive an opportunity, a way to make a lot of money. And uh, if they do it, one of the other points I made in the piece is, you know, we don't know how to feel about people who make money Mm -hmm. in this kind of situation. First of all, we don't yet know if anybody will make money or anybody has made money, but there are probably people out there who bought credit default swaps on on Russian debt, meaning that they bought, stop me if I'm getting too technical, they bought sort of insurance on Russian debt. In other words, if the Russian debt traded down as it has significantly, they still have to get their hundred cents on the dollar. And that's, they bought insurance and, and that's, you know, that's a home run. Or people who shorted the ruble or who shorted Russian equities expecting you know, Russia just uh, to kind of implode. There are probably people who who did that, Peter. We don't know who they are yet. Mm-hmm. And then uh, there are people probably who are looking at, and there are now reports that China uh, could be among the people doing this, who are looking at these cheap Russian stocks. I mean, I guess if you're China, again, I'm just being theoretical here because I don't know anything specifically, but, you know, if there's a chance to buy Gazprom on the cheap or Rosneft on the cheap or, you know, some, you know, supply of Russian oil on the cheap, then there are probably people out there who are thinking this is a huge buying opportunity Mm -hmm. or they're thinking the war might somehow resolve itself sooner rather than later and that the debt of these Russian companies that's trading at 20 cents on the dollar will soon trade at 80 cents on the dollar and then they've made four times their money. Mm-hmm. So there are probably people who are doing that. There are always people who are doing that. That is the nature of markets. And other times when things like that's happened, we kind of celebrate them. Mm-hmm. You know, like the whole point of Michael Lewis's great book, uh, you know, The Big Short about the 2008 financial crisis was to celebrate the people who made money, you know, essentially shorting the mortgage market. You know, I wrote in my Goldman book about how Goldman made, you know, $4 billion shorting the mortgage market. I mean, we often celebrate people who see things that others don't, who make money 
Uh, we don't like to say that they make money off the misery of other people, but in fact, because we like to disconnect those two things, but there are people who are making a lot of money at the same time that there are people who are having existential crises in their lives. And both things can be true and both things can be happening at the same time. And both things probably are happening at the same time. We just don't know who those people are yet who are making money off this mess in Russia and Ukraine. One of the most interesting parts of this piece to me was the morality question you touched on or ethics of making lots of money off of this. As you mentioned, the big short made the folks that made a ton of money off the the mortgage collapse seem like soothsayers, you know, and they were truth tellers, visionaries, visionaries, and (laughs) they did make a shit ton of money off of people losing their houses. You know, you talk too about Soros, George Soros, you know, made a bill off of shorting the pound back in 1992. He's also seen as as a visionary. Um, And so you interviewed Bill Ackman, the hedge fund manager who also did something similar. He turned $27 million into roughly $3.6 billion during the first three weeks of the pandemic, betting that the markets would crash. Three weeks. Think about that. Yeah. In three weeks, he turned $27 million into $3.6 billion. I've called that the greatest trade of all time. I want to stay on the Russia thing, but I don't ask you about that because me, financial ignoramus, was just fooling around with funny money. And when the pandemic began, Delta, like every airline, collapsed. <laughs> and then I was like, oh, I, just, I bought some Delta stock, assuming, obviously, airlines were going to come back. And they did. I didn't make any like real money off of that. But what did Bill Ackman do to make that much money off of the pandemic? Well, the first thing he did, you know, and I've spent a lot of time talking to Bill about this and have written about it extensively. First thing he did was clue into the danger of the pandemic long before anybody else or long before many other people, especially in this country. So by January of 2020, he had already began to think that this was going to be really bad. Now, as he told me, you know, he came upon this in a dream and then he talked to experts that he knew, which is sort of what hedge fund guys do before they make a big bet. And then he figured out that this was kind of the real thing and, you know, not since 1918 kind of thing. And here it was again, 102 years later. So that was step number one. So, and and then having conviction about it, Mm -hmm. that was step number two. Mm -hmm. Step number three was what to do about it. So uh, I think he realized that when, once again, uh, when the lines of fear and greed cross, uh, that's when a big change is afoot. He realized that once people began to figure out that this was the real thing, that the markets would freak out mm-hmm. just kind of like they're doing now in, you know, to a lesser degree that that was even more of a panic because basically we shut down the U S economy. And so he realized that a consequence of this might be the literal shutting down of the U S economy. So, and don't forget markets then in February of 2020 were basically at an all time high, you know, the high yield bond was trading around 5% which has been sort of like an all-time high. So he bought credit default swaps. He bought insurance that when uh, the bond uh, prices fell, that that insurance would become more valuable. Or when bond yields increased, as they did very rapidly in, in March and April of 2020, once March 10th or whatever rolled around and people began to realize 
you know, the closing of the NBA, you know, Tom Hanks in Sydney, Australia, et cetera. We know the the narrative uh, that uh, people would freak out, the markets would freak out, people would, uh, you know, be very risk averse and want uh, safety and, and interest rates would spike. And so when those interest rates spiked, as he predicted that they would, when the markets came to realize what was going on with the pandemic, his credit default swaps would be hugely valuable. So he paid the $27 million was what he had to pay to buy the credit default swaps. And by the time he wanted to sell them, literally two weeks or three weeks later, they were worth $2.6 billion. Then he took uh, a billion of that and or took some of that and plowed it into his long positions on his existing portfolio, betting that the Federal Reserve would come in and save the day like they did in 2008. Mm-hmm. And so that was the fourth thing that he did right, uh, which was he would bet, he bet that the Federal Reserve would and the cavalry would come to rescue the markets just like they did in 2008. And he was right about that in a very big way. And so he managed to then add another billion to his winnings uh, on his long positions. So, and he all did it all in three weeks. And then he got out. He probably could have made more, but, you know, then he got, then he got out. So if we're casting Ackman in this scenario as a visionary then, um, and you talked to him the other day when he was cruising himself around Newport Beach, what is his vision, his take on what the conflict is going to do not just to the Russian economy, but to the global economy and possibly the U.S. economy. Well, so this time uh, he, you know, had this tweet storm a few days ago. And, you know, he also had a tweet storm in whatever, like February and March of 2020. Uh, but this time he doesn't have a, he had no financial bet on other than he has his long portfolio still. So he's, as he told me, he's still long America, uh, you know, he's not expecting to benefit either way other than just, you know, if the markets recover. But I think he's genuinely scared shitless, if I can use that word, about sort of what's going on between Russia and Ukraine and whether that can metastasize and whether we're already in World War Three, and whether or not, you know, we should actually be confronting Putin and, you know, having an actual red line and having a no-fly zone, letting those MiGs from Poland go to Ukraine and and giving Poland new jets. I mean, you know, all the things that we're not doing as a show of restraint, he thinks the time has come to be much more confrontational with Putin. So he, he, he does these things to try to provoke a reaction from, you know, the people who can do something about it in Washington gotcha, gotcha. or in New York who then influence the people in Washington or in, in San Francisco and LA who then influence the people in Washington. Yes. The donors who, who bend the ears of politicians on the phone or in person when they see them. Yeah. We can get Teddy <laughs> on the line to <laughs> exactly. figure out what's going on there. The last thing I want to ask you, Bill is, you know, again, talking about the morality or ethics of profiting off of this sort of conflict, you know, Pete Rose famously said, I never bet on the Reds to lose, <laughs> you know, and that sort of had, you know, I don't, I don't believe him as a Reds fan, but the idea of betting for or against the bad guy or the good guy, you know, make some of this stuff feel okay, even if the people of Russia are suffering greatly at the moment. But my question here is, have you heard of anyone placing any weird bets, shorts <laughs> against anything in Ukraine? 
I mean, that feels, that feels evil, <laughs> actually, to try to make money off of Ukraine's debt or, or businesses in Ukraine. Is any of that happening? Are you picking up on any of that? Well, I've not heard uh, anything about that. To be honest, I assume there is a Ukraine stock market. I don't know whether there is or there isn't. I don't know whether there are Ukraine sovereign securities or debt or equity securities of Ukraine companies that are publicly traded. And there probably are. Um, I haven't heard anything about that. All that I've heard that's been going on is Russia focused. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, in other words, you know, is there a way to, uh, you know, make money either shorting the ruble, uh, Russian sovereign debt, Russian corporate debt, Russian equities, or buying the, the debt or equity that has been so beaten down because of the sanctions and just the general feeling that nobody wants to do business. I mean, basically, there's no business being done. Well, obviously, there's no being, business being done in Ukraine. They're in an existential threat. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Russia, there's no capital markets business. There's no equity and debt offerings. There's no. There's some trading that's going on that Wall Street is doing hmm. uh, to their trading for their client. They're very clear about this. They're trading for their clients in non-sanctioned in the in the in the securities of non-sanctioned companies. I believe like Gazprom is not on the sanction list because they want the oil, you know, to keep flowing. And so, even though we're not importing it, others probably in Europe are. And so they want that oil. And so th- there are clients who probably own the debt or equity of Gazprom and want to trade in or out of that. Uh, those securities that Wall Street uh, is doing, uh, you know, Goldman Sachs is doing, J.P. Morgan Chase is doing, and they're also working very closely with the U.S. government on, you know, implementing the sanctions in monitoring payments that are, you know, in and around Russia and being on the lookout for cyber crimes uh, or, you know, any kind of cyber threats. So they're kind of working very closely hand in hand. You know, you'll notice that no Wall Street firms uh, have said like McDonald's or Starbucks mm-hmm. or uh, Coca-Cola, whatever, that they're getting out of Russia. Nothing. Mm-hmm. It's been silent. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's because they're they're not. They're not doing any business. There's money to be made. Well, they don't want anybody to think they're making money. They are, yeah. they are providing client service for their clients who want to, trading out of these non-securities of non-sanctioned companies. There's no investment banking business to be done. You know, there's no mergers to be advised on. There's no debt or equity underwriting. So there's some trading for clients. All right, Bill, thanks for helping us make sense of all that because right. I had no idea this was happening until I read your piece. <laughs> um, all right, keep Thank an eye out for us. Yeah, see you next time. Okay. Uh, it's Duke Syracuse uh, at noon, by the way, tomorrow. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, if you're listening to this when it airs, The Powers That Be will be a daily podcast starting this Monday. We'd like to thank Julia Yaffe and William Cohan for talking to me today. I'm Peter Hamby, and I'll see you Monday and every weekday after that. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts.